This morning, the last several weeks, we've looked at the book of Joshua. We've looked at what it's going to take to take the land and do something for the cause of Christ. The Lord still calls. People still answer. God still moves. D.L. Moody said this. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man that is completely and totally sold out to him. I still believe that. I still believe the world has yet to see what God can do with somebody that will give everything they are to the cause of Christ. We've looked at the book of Joshua. We looked in chapter number one. A Joshua heart is a heart that is courageous. Then in chapter number one, a Joshua heart is a heart that is obedient. Then we saw in chapter number two that a Joshua heart is one that is encapsulated in this woman named Rahab. This morning, I want to look at Joshua chapter number four. After you get through chapter three, we've gotten through the River Jordan and the Joshua heart that had faith. I want to talk to you this morning about a Joshua heart with one word, remember. Joshua chapter number three. Four this morning, and I want you to look in verse 1, verse 2, and verse number 3. Joshua 4, verse number 1, and it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Now, brothers and sisters, why would God have them do that? Well, I want you to look at the end of this chapter in verse number 21. Joshua 4 and verse number 21. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then... Ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry ground. Brothers and sisters, Joshua chapter number 4, the people of God are standing smack dab on the precipice of the destiny that God has birthed them for. They are finally on the sunny banks of Jordan's deliverance. They've got Egypt at their back. They've got the wilderness at their back. They've got yesterday at their back. And now they are looking at Jericho. They are looking at what God is going to do. They are looking at what God is going to deliver to them. But before that Joshua is allowed to go one step into the land of Canaan, he was told by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27, he said, now Joshua, listen. When you get into the land of Canaan, 
the first thing you are to do is when the waters are parted out of the way of Jordan, you are to go down into the riverbed of Jordan and get out as big a stone as one man can carry. He said, I want 12 men that are going to grab 12 different stones. I want those stones to be put on their shoulder, and then I want you to take them, and I want you to pitch them, the Bible says, on the other side of Jordan. Joshua, the reason that you are to do that is because there will come a day whenever the generation that saw the river Jordan split open are going to die. And the ones that were there are no longer going to be around. And there's going to be a generation that comes. They will not have seen the Jordan part, but they will see these stones. And when the children come to those stones in the time to come, I want them to walk down there with their daddies and say, Daddy, what mean these stones? Daddy, why is this memorial here? Daddy, why have you raised up this pile of stones? And then their daddy is going to be able to look at those children and say, Son, the reason this memorial is here is because one day we had no ability. One day we had no promise. One day we had nothing in our own strength but God Almighty stepped out of heaven and rolled the sea back and the same God that did that for us back then is the same God that can do that today and then they were to take stones from the river bank that had not been in the water and the stones that were taken out out had to be replaced and so there were 12 stones that were put from the bank of the river put into the center of the water let's look at these stones right quick and then I'll get to the end and just kind of dance around and testify for just a little bit what number one you've got to understand the picture of these stones you see the picture of these stones is found in verse number three and down in verse number nine you see God never does anything for no reason. There are, there are not any things, no problems, things, situations, issues that occur that God does not have a purpose and a reason. So whenever these 12 stones are piled up on the side of Jordan where deliverance came, there was a picture. There was a threefold picture with those stones. I'll give them to you and maybe we'll testify a little bit. The first picture there, it is the picture of imputation. Are y'all impressed with my education? Doesn't it make anybody else sick whenever preachers get up and say big old long words that you know they had to learn in a cemetery, I mean seminary? What is imputation? Imputation is the doctrine whereby something was taken off of one person and placed on another person and what was on that person was taken off of that person and placed on another person. Now watch this. There were stones that were in the river covered with that water, covered in that miry grave, but yet there was something supernatural that 
pulled that watery grave apart and that which were in the river of death were taken out and that which was not in the river of death switched spots which that which was in the river of death. What is that a picture of? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse number 21 and he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be called the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see one day long before eternity ever began God the Father, God the Son and God the sweet Holy Ghost had already been around forever. I don't know how that happens. I just take it by faith because it's in the book. There are some things about God I don't understand. I don't try to understand. I just put them down in shoe leather and walk in the truth of them. You see way back yonder in eternity past he was holy. Way back yonder in eternity past he was righteous. Way back yonder in eternity past he was at the right hand of God the Father. Way back yonder in eternity past he was the goodness of God. Way back yonder in eternity past he was the grace of God. Way back yonder in eternity past he was the blessing of God. Way back yonder in eternity past he was the holy outstretched arm of God. But yet one day in the Garden of Eden we which had the image of God we which had the likeness of the Son of God. We which had the very name the sons of God. We fell in our sin. We fell in our unrighteousness. We fell in our rebellion and in that moment we were placed outside of the family of God. Outside of the promise of God. Outside of the hope of God. We were in a river of death. We were in a river covered by the waters of our sin but one good glad holy day on top of bloody Calvary. The waters of sin were rolled back and we were exposed that day but yet we had to get out of that river because they were going to close back in but here's what happened on the good glad day that I got saved and asked Jesus to be my savior I got taken out of the river of sin and he got placed in the river of sin because on the cross of Calvary he became everything I ever would be ever thought about being everything you ever thought about being ladies and gentlemen today the one reason why I know that I'm saved and sealed forever is because every time God the Father looks at me he looks at me as if I am the very record of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen he's made the people of God. He took us out of the river of death and Christ was put in the river of death that's called imputation. I just saved you $35,000 a seminary. Galatians chapter 3 verse number 13 Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Last time I checked, there was only one that mattered when he hung on a tree. So therefore, if he was cursed in my place, I am blessed in his place. You see, every time I look at Calvary, those stones, that memorial, I see the doctrine of imputation. Number two, I find in verse number 10, these stones are a picture of, of law and grace. Now, I got a wild imagination, beloved. But this is the second time the waters have parted for the children of Israel. The first time the waters parted, does anybody remember how it happened? A man named Moses lifted up a staff. And as long as his arms were raised, the waters stay parted. 
As long as he did his part, the water stayed split. That wood is a picture of man. You see, under the law, as long as man keeps all 613 laws, death doesn't touch him. But the last time I checked, there was not a single person that ever lived that was ever able to keep every one of the laws of God. And you know the problem? And I know what most Baptists say. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as wicked as such-and-such. You know what James said? James said, if you offend in one point of the law, you have offended the entire law. But when the Jordan River split, it wasn't a wooden staff being held up. The ark of God stood in the river. And as long as the golden ark stayed there, the water stayed split. You see, that's a picture of the grace of God. You see, metals in the Bible mean stuff. Bronze in the Bible is always a picture of judgment. Silver in the Bible is always a picture of man. Gold in the Bible is always a symbol of God. That's why in the tabernacle, everything on the outside, you've got the bronze laver and you've got the bronze altar where the blood was applied. But when you get past the bronze altar where the blood was applied, it goes from the metal of judgment, bronze, and it turns into the metal of God, which is gold, because you get into the presence of God by going through the blood. I, I digress, but here we go. All of a sudden that day in the Jordan River, it was not man holding up that river. It was God holding up that river. Under law, I've got to do everything right. I've got to say everything right. I've got to perform everything right. But under the grace of God, under the new covenant, when I get in Jesus Christ, I may mess up. I may flub the dub. I may say things I don't mean. I may think things I don't mean. Don't you act like you don't. You sitting in this church right now, you done thought 14 different bad things since you've been sitting here. But here's what I'm telling you. It's not my righteousness that keeps me in the family of God because at the right hand of God the Father, I've got a great and holy high priest that holds arms up. It's a picture of law and grace. I'm trying, honey. There's a third picture of those stones. It's a picture of the resurrection. The Bible tells us in verse number, the verse number 20 of this chapter, Joshua... Don't just lay the stones. It says you pitch them. That means stand them up long ways, one on top of another. So whenever somebody is coming off of the mountains of Jericho down into the Dead Sea Plain, they're going to see a rock standing up. They're going to see that which was laid flat in the river of death standing up straight on the banks of deliverance. They're going to see that which was dead standing up alive forevermore. You see, Jesus Christ took our death, died our death, was buried in the tomb, but was raised, resurrected three days after that death to live forevermore. He which was dead is now alive. Brothers and sisters, let me just stop and take a Baptist time out. That's why you're baptized after you're saved because you're saying, I identify with the Lamb of God just as he went into the grave. I'm going to identify by going into that watery grave just as he was all the way dead. I'm going all the way 
lay under the water. That's why we don't sprinkle. That's why we don't pour. You can't be sprinkled a little bit dead. You can't be poured a little bit dead. You either all dead, not all dead, not all there. You all dead. And when I was dead, you were dead. We were all dead in sin. That's why we go all the way under the water. We look one way going down. But when we get all the way down, we are raised up to walk in the newness of life. And that which was no longer is. And let me just stop and take another baptism. If you've never been baptized, you say, preacher, I'm saved. Yes, you are saved. And I'm glad you're saved. You don't have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. But the very first thing a child of God is supposed to do after you're saved is to make that public profession. And to make that public profession, you say, I am willing to be baptized in public. Come in. Brothers and sisters, those stones standing on that water. People walk down and say, wait a second. Those stones ain't always been like that. They're standing up out of the water of death. The only thing that separates the church of Jesus Christ from Allah and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest of them is the fact that our founder, the author, and the finisher of our faith is alive forevermore. And brothers and sisters, I remind you those stones were a picture. Number two, those stones were a portrayal. You see, after you realize what the picture is, you've got to understand what God was portraying. The Bible tells us in verse number two and verse number three that there were 12 stones. Stones mean something. Stones are a picture of authority and power. They're firm. They're founded. But numbers in the Bible mean stuff as well. A lot of people don't like that. A lot of people don't believe. But there's this thing called biblical numerology. And numbers in the Bible have pictures and meanings. For instance, every time you see the number one, it's the picture of unity. Every time you see the number two, it's the picture of witness. Every time you see the number three, it's the picture of the trinity. Every time you see the number four, it is the picture of the earth. How many points on a compass? North, south, east, and west. Every time you see five in the Bible, it's a picture of the grace of God. All of the offerings in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were five offerings saying the only way you're getting into the presence of God is by the very grace of God. Six in the Bible is the number of man. What day was man created on? He was created on the sixth day. Whenever the Antichrist stands up in the tribulation, what will be the number labeled across the forehead of those that believe six 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 ladies and gentlemen six is the number of man seven in the bible is the number of completion and perfection it is the number of god the number eight in the bible is the number of new beginnings because seven days a week and on that eighth day is a brand new week the number nine in the bible is a picture of the fullness of the holy ghost galatians chapter number five tells us that there are nine fruits of the holy ghost whenever somebody is saved and they're filled with the Holy Ghost. You don't get filled with the Holy Ghost and express it by speaking in tongues. You don't express it by running the aisles and shouting. I've met a whole lot of people that run and shouted that were meaner than a junkyard dog. That's not a sign or a symbol of the Holy Ghost. I've seen people that would speak in tongues and turkey talk all the way home, but yet to yell at their wife and yell at their husband and are full of the devil. Do you know what the sign of being full of the Holy Ghost is? Is to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, to be filled with love, to be filled with joy, to be filled with peace, to be filled with long-suffering, to be filled with gentleness, to be filled with meekness, to be filled with temperance, above which there is no law. Don't show me somebody that jumps high and shouts loud. Show me somebody that loves the meanest, and I'll show you somebody full of the Holy Ghost. 
Ten in the Bible is always the number of law. How many commandments were written on those tablets? Ten. Brothers and sisters, eleven in the Bible is the number of chaos, the number of confusion. Twelve in the Bible is always the number of governmental authority. There were twelve sons of Jacob. The twelve sons of Jacob became the twelve tribes of Israel. We find in the New Testament there were twelve disciples. And when one disciple died, Judas, the church could not go forward until they elected another disciple, Matthias. There were 12 apostles in the New Testament. You look in New Jerusalem, and there are 12 tribes and 12,000 saints are called from each tribe to be the 144,000 witness, which is 12 squared. Brothers and sisters, you find in New Jerusalem when it comes down, there are 12 gates and 12 foundation stones And you also find that the city has a wall around it that's 14,000 cubits, which is 12, or excuse me, 144,000 cubits, which is 12 squared. 12 in the Bible is the number of God's kingdom. Why would God have Joshua set up 12 stones at the bank of the promised land. You ready? Here's what he was trying to portray. He was trying to let all the people that had been living life their way know that God is back in town and things are about to change. Ladies and gentlemen, when a man or a woman of God gets filled with the Holy Spirit and they say, I'm going to live my life for Jesus Christ. I'm going to live my life for Jesus at work. I'm going to live my life for Jesus at home. I'm going to live my life for Jesus at school. I'm going to live my life for Jesus out in public. I'm going to live my life for Jesus on social media. Say amen right there. I'm going to live my life everywhere. It's a symbol. Do you know what it's a symbol of? That there's a sheriff in town and God is his name. He does not bow to anybody else. They act like a child of God. They breathe like a child of God. They smell like a child of God. They act like a child of God. They order themselves like a child of God. That's what the memorial of Christ does in our lives. It shows that God's in charge in our heart. You got the portrait, you got the portrayal. Then number three, you've got the purpose. Look in verse number six, if you will. And I'm going somewhere, I'm telling you, but I got to get here before I can get there. If I don't get here, then we ain't going to go there. And if I don't get there, you ain't going to be happy. So let me get here, then we'll go there. And when we go there, you'll be glad we got here. And once we get here, then we can go there. And once you're happy you're here, then we'll get there. But if I don't teach before I preach, you're not going to enjoy the preach when I get there. So let me do the teaching, then we'll do the preaching. Once you enjoy the preaching, you'll be glad you got the teaching. Here's what I'm saying. In verse number 6, the Bible says, Set those stones up to be a sign. Those stones were to be a sign. Do you know what the word sign means in Hebrew? It means to be a banner, a memorial, or something that strikes remembrance. Whenever they looked at those stones, it was to jog their memory of who God was. Signs are all over creation. 
The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis chapter number 2 that God put the sun in the sky during the day and the moon in the sky during night to be a sign. What in the world would God put the sun in the sky for and the moon in the sky? Because every time you look at it, you realize there is a creator that made that. Genesis chapter number 9, Noah gets off of the ark. God said, I'm going to put my bow in the sky to be a sign that I'll never flood the earth again. Brothers and sisters, you look into, go all throughout the Bible. God puts these signs everywhere. But you say, what's our sign? What does God give us that strikes our memory? Brothers and sisters, the greatest sign that was ever placed on earth was placed on a rugged hillside one day on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. There on top of Golgotha's hill, Jesus Christ bore the emblem of the cross upon his back. There Jesus Christ bled and died as the cross of Calvary was placed down in the ground. And now every single time bloody Calvary comes to my mind, God wants us to remember. Ladies and gentlemen, is there any wonder why people don't like the cross? It makes them remember. There is a reason why churches today don't want anything to do with the cross because it makes them remember. That's why the Methodist church has gone to where they are. They don't preach the cross anymore. That's why the Lutheran church is what it is today because they don't preach the cross anymore. That's why non-denominationalism does not like the cross. That's why they don't want it out there. It offends people. It bothers people. It makes people nervous on the inside. Why? Because it sparks something inside of the mind of humanity. I cannot go anywhere and not see a cross and my mind not think about something. I can't see it around somebody's neck and my mind not go, honey, I ride down the road and I see pie lines that are in the shape of a cross and the first thing my mind thinks I go back to bloody Calvary the reason the devil doesn't like the cross is it makes us remember something the reason the devil doesn't like the cross it makes us think about something and I go ahead and make a prophecy right now I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet but if the Baptist church thinks they're going to get anywhere by taking the cross out of the eye shot of humanity they'll go the same way as every other denomination that ever has been honey I say lift up the blood stained banner and the sheep of God will be thankful because it does something. It's a sign. Causes us to remember. I just want to exhort and testify a little bit. When I look at the cross, the greatest remembering block in the world, what do I think of? Number one, I think about the fact that God is great. When my mind and my memory goes down yonder to Calvary's bloody hill and I see the cross standing between heaven and earth, I think, God, only you can do these things. Tyler, what what are you talking about? Well, for over 1,500 years, man had been taking the blood of bulls and goats and they had been shedding the blood of those bulls and goats and sprinkling it on the mercy seat year by year. The reason they had to do it year by year is because the blood was never great enough to wash away the sin of the world. But yet that day, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, for what the blood of bulls and goats could not do, 
how much more shall the blood of Christ purge us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness? When I look back at bloody Calvary, I look back and I say, God, I had a debt I could not pay. I had a chasm I could not cross. I had something I could not handle. But there on that rugged cross, when God became man and man became the sons of God, all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Bloody cross, thank be unto God for the cross of Jesus Christ. It was at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul was rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. You know what I look back on when I see the cross? I say, God, there is nothing you cannot handle. There is nothing you cannot do. There is nothing you cannot take care of. There is no thing too big. There is no river too wide. There is no mountain too tall. There is nothing you cannot handle. Because on that day when Jesus Christ died for me and bled for me and shed his blood for me and gave everything he had for me, I realized right then, God, you took care of my biggest problem. Therefore, all the other problems are lesser than that. You say, where do you get that? The book of Romans, chapter number 8, verse number 32, the apostle Paul says this. He says, if he gave his own son for us, shall he not give us all things freely? Brothers and sisters, we get so upset over the smallest stuff. We think we're suffering persecution when the water that was supposed to be on sale in the paper, when we get down to the Kroger and they're sold out. Oh God, why are you doing this to me? Lord, what burdens I must bear. We, we think we are suffering persecution with the smallest little things. Do you know why? Because when you lose sight of the sign, you start making bigger deals out of smaller things. My wife and I have learned this lesson. When you walk down to hell backwards and have to fight the devil himself, ain't a whole lot upsets you. Me and Erica, we used to fuss and fight like a bunch of cats and dogs, Brandon. I mean, listen, I can't help she don't understand stuff. That ain't my fault. How many men know if your wife would just see things the way you do, you wouldn't have any problems? Women, how many of you know there'd be no fusses in your house if he'd just do things the way you told him to do things? I'm going to tell you something. I think the women are bolder than the men in this house. When Erica's sister was killed in that car accident, those things have a way of showing you what really matters in life. Brothers and sisters, the things that we call persecutions don't even resonate in eternity. And do you know why? We've taken our eyes off of the cross. We see church as a religious function. And that's why when the music doesn't pop just right, and that's why when the sound system's this, and that's why when so-and-so didn't speak that, it bothers us because it's a religious function where I've got to be entertained. But when you realize the church is a gathering of blood-washed saints 
who've been to Calvary. You start saying, God, I'm a broken vessel gathered into a house with a bunch of broken vessels who've realized no matter how big, no matter how bad, no matter how rough and how tough, I keep my eyes on the cross and I realize, God, you are great. When was the last time you looked at bloody Calvary and remembered? Number two, Joshua Hart doesn't just see how great God is, but number two, whenever a Joshua Hart looks at the cross, they realize God is gracious. Gracious. What does the word gracious mean? Here you go. You ready? He gives you what you don't deserve and doesn't give you what you do deserve. That's grace. Grace is when God not only withholds what you rightfully deserve, but he gives you what you don't deserve. What did I deserve? I deserved death. I deserved hell. I deserved damnation. I deserved eternal punishment. I deserved to be out of the presence of God. But at the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ looked at me through Christ's sacrifice and he said, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm not going to put you in hell. I'm not going to take you forever away from my presence. I am not going to make you suffer for all eternity. That's not the fullness of grace. You see, if that was all it was, that would just be mercy. But Yet that day at Calvary, he didn't just say, I'm going to take everything you do deserve. He said, I'm going to give you things you don't deserve. I'm going to give you a home in heaven. I'm going to let you abide by my side forever. I'm going to write your name in my book. I'm going to seal you forever with my Holy Ghost. I'm going to give you things you don't deserve. Can I help you with something? Every one of us ought to be in hell, back broke, frying like a piece of bacon. The fact we're able to come into church shows us how gracious God really is. So-and-so sat in my seat. They won't take your seat in hell, and that's where all of us deserve to be. When you realize that, I'll stand in the back. I'll park in the field. Honey, I'll, I'll, I'll go down to Publix, eat that sandwich, and get somebody to pick me up on a golf cart. You know why? Because anything north of hell is more than I deserve. And when I look at the cross, I say, God, you sure are gracious. The old atheist one day got up in a college class, and he said, how many of you believe in God? Kids raised their hands. He said, if there's a God, let him strike me dead right now. And he waited. 30 seconds passed, a minute passed, 10 minutes, 20 minutes passed. And he said, see, I told you there is no God. And one of the young women in the back raised their hand. She said, sir, you did not prove there wasn't a God. You simply proved how gracious he was. 
Brothers and sisters, I remind the American people right now, we don't deserve anything because we're under the red, white, and blue. We don't, we're not owed anything. The high and holy God of eternity has every right right now to rip this nation apart and to throw us all in hell. But the very, cha- the very fact that we're here right now and we can pray and seek the face of God and bow on our heart, bow on our knees and bow our hearts and say, Lord, bless me indeed. It shows me that God is Gracious. Number three, and here I'm done, I'm out of here. Number three, the third thing when I look at the cross that I remember is that God is good. God is good. Joshua, you stand on the sunny banks of sweet deliverance, and every time you look at those rocks, son, you remember. You don't deserve anything you're about to get. You don't deserve the milk. You don't deserve the honey. You don't deserve the the almond trees. You don't deserve the nutmeg. You don't deserve the apples. You don't deserve the oranges. You don't deserve any of it. And just when you get spoiled rotten one day and that spirit of murmuring that your forefathers had back in the wilderness starts to come over you, you look back at that stone and realize, I don't deserve any of this. Can I tell you what my problem is the most? I'm spoiled rotten. And so are you. You're sitting in padded pews in a building that is maintained by over a million dollars worth of heat and air. And yet something inside of us says it's a little warm in here. Rotten is what we are. Spoiled rotten we're going to complain in just a second because the waitress doesn't bring our, our, our food out fast enough and yet our bellies are so big right now we can't even button our belt rotten is what we are there are little children right now in this world whose bellies are so puffed up because their belly the gastric juices inside don't have anything to digest so it's starting to eat itself And it's swelling up. And we've got the audacity to complain. Some of us this week got so frustrated with our spouses because they didn't say something right, they didn't do something right. Pastor Brandon says it all the time. He said, you do realize that today is just another day to some, but to others it's the worst day that they'll ever live. Somebody just buried a husband the one you complain about. Some little mama is going to have to shut a little casket lid today over the same children you got frustrated with this morning. Some little child would love to have the scraps you complained weren't warm enough or cooked to your proper temperature. Some church will vote this morning to close the doors because they don't have enough people. But yet we'll complain because it's a little tight. We're spoiled rotten. We get upset because so-and-so didn't speak to us, and we get upset over this and that, but God is good. Look at the cross of Calvary. 
I look at the beams outstretched and I see the Son of God die and I say, God, that should. That should have been me. But not only was it not me, while you were giving him everything I deserved up there, I'm down here on the ground and you just keep blessing me. I've got shoes on my feet. And I'll get ill this week because they're not as shiny as they used to be. I got clothes on my back and I'll get upset because it doesn't have the shine it used to. But when I look at the cross, I realize God is good. My wife makes me so mad sometimes, just like yours does, boys. And I mean, I bet I make her mad in a junkyard dog. My wife doesn't say ugly words. She really don't. She, she don't say ugly words. You can't get her to say an ugly word. But every now and again, she'll say, I don't say ugly words, but I'm thinking it right now. I could have woke up this morning and had to call 911 and rush her to the hospital. Cold and lifeless, but today we rode to the house of God together because God is good. I've got my son. I got my little girl. God is good. Well, I know I'm not wealthy and these clothes, they're not new. I don't have much money, but Lord, I have you. And to me, that's all that matters. Though the world may not see Thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. Because there's a roof up above me. I've a good place to sleep. There's food on my table and shoes on my feet. You gave me your love, Lord. And a fine family. So thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. Beloved, may I ask you a question? When was the last time you looked at the cross and said, Lord, I want to thank you for my husband, for our little home, for my wife and our kids. God, that vehicle may not be what it used to be, but it got me here today. And no, Lord, I don't have as much in my account as I had, and I don't my retire, but I got enough. About the easiest thing to do to break being spoiled rotten is to thank God. Today, somebody needs to remember. Remember.